Escape velocity. Hi there. Welcome to Escape Velocity Radio, Episode 9. I'm your host, Chris, and with me today in the studio is my friend, Derek. Hi, Derek. Do you know what day it is today? Thursday? It is Thursday. But Derek, it's also an historic 10th anniversary. Do you know what that anniversary is? Ah, yes. The release of Nickelback's seminal opus, The Long Road. While that may be true, Derek, this one's even more important than that, if you can believe it. For ten years ago, began the long, difficult work of liberating 25 million Iraqis. And all who played a role in history deserve our respect and appreciation. What? I don't know. That's just what Donald Rumsfeld said on Twitter the other day. Donald Rumsfeld is full of shit. Let me tell you about the Iraq Body Count Project, Chris. They have been continuously tracking since 2003 a public record of civilian deaths on their website. IBC has documented 112,000 to 122,000 civilian deaths from violence between March 2003 and March 2013. A complete account of violent deaths that includes Iraqi and foreign combatants, including coalition forces, as well as previously unreported civilian deaths, is still being extracted by IBC from the Iraq war logs released by WikiLeaks. This would include 39,900 combatants killed in all nationalities, 11,500 civilians likely to be added from the Iraqi war logs, yielding about 174,000 as the number of people documented killed in violence in Iraq since 2003. So Donald Rumsfeld can go fuck himself! Sorry I brought him up. Hi, Derek. I'm home. Hey, yay! You're Holy back. Holy shit, we've been gone a long time, eh? Yeah, it's been it's been a full two months. We what? It's been a full two months since our last episode. Did we miss two episodes? No, but it's been two months since the well, last. Don't say one two was months. Released. Just say one. Just say one. Well, but it's been sixty days. Yeah, but that counts for all thirty of those days. That episode. Can we just give a brief apology to our listeners? I'm for- not apologizing for what I've done. Oh, you mean well, regarding you the do. podcast? Regarding the podcast, Oh, yes. sure, yeah, yeah, that. I thought we, you meant that other thing. We, <laughs> also, what, we missed a month. What happened in that month? Nothing anyways. No, no, nothing's been happening in, in the months of no. March and April. They've been calm on the world no, stage. Don't say two months, though. Just say one month. Because <laughs> then it makes people think we've only missed one month. Because that's what they did. They're supposed to listen to the last episode for 30 days. Right. And then Every they, day for 30 days. Yeah. Yeah. 
That's what I do. I only listen to like about 13 seconds every day. Uh, so I was away in Europe. Yes. Uh, on tour in the band called Propagandi. Never heard of them. And uh, you have no excuse, actually, for not maintaining the podcast while I was gone. You know, I've been working on other aspects of the podcast while you For been this away. month, but not for the previous month. Well, for the previous month... You I- should have done a fucking little quick episode that would come out on the 15th, thereby giving people 15 days of joy. But I you would- didn't. You sat at home watching movies, didn't you? Reading books. Making notes in base camp. All this is true. I wonder how would... I wonder what people would think of me occasionally unilaterally releasing short episodes which just feature me shit-talking you. And then I also, in Europe, do the same thing and release these little episodes where I shit-talk you. Without me, you wouldn't know You wouldn't know how to add a new episode. I would have no idea. No. I would shit-talk you about that. <laughs> and then I would just listen to it myself. <laughs> well, that's why I took some of the time away from yeah. recording a new podcast to set up our mailing list, Chris, our email list. A so mailing that, list. So people could stay apprised I think that some of our listeners might be less technically inclined than those than who, the, well, all of them are more technically inclined than you. So if people maybe aren't on the iTunes, they don't know how to subscribe to a podcast via an RSS feed. They're not familiar with the SoundCloud and the whatnots and the, the wherewithals. Yeah. They can just punch their email address into a box yeah. on the website, Yeah. click the button, and then they will get an email when we release new episodes. That's very convenient. How many people are on the mailing list so far? Uh, we have 27 people on the mailing list so far. So people. Uh, Long story short, sign up to the mailing list and you won't miss a future one that we forget to do. Though we could notify people, people. that there won't be one. Yeah. Well, that's great. We, some, you know, some of this we started to talk about when we made cursory attempts at an episode uh, for April, but then... But ran out of time. Ran out of time. Before I left. We're sidetracked. So, you know, if some of this seems old to you, guess what? Fuck you. Go listen to Citizen Radio every day or Radio Dispatch. You know, people who actually talk about news on a regular basis. If you want to get news on a regular basis, don't come to Escape But if you want radio. news that is 30 to 60 days behind, yes. come here. Come with, here. With zero additional analysis. Hugo Chavez died. He did. This is the president, past president of Venezuela. That's I say, true. I say past because he died. We had a big skit about it. We had a pretty funny skit. In- you know what? Let's play a little clip from our skit from okay. last month when it was actually timely. Here Sounds we go. good. <laughs> yeah, buddy! <laughs> That's Chris, what I'm uh, talking about! What's up there? <laughs> what are you doing? Well, I'm celebrating the death of Hugo Chavez as documented here in the National Post, my favorite newspaper. Hugo Chavez, the president of Venezuela. Ha! Autocratic demagogue and dictator of Venezuela, more like it. Uh, you know he was democratically elected, right? Ha! Six times, in fact. Fraud! Electoral fraud! Are you a fool? Are you a naive fucking idiot? Well, actually, Chris, international observers, including Jimmy Carter and the National Lawyers Guild, confirmed that the elections were completely free and fair, and in fact were called the best in the world and a model for democracy. I don't care if he was elected by a landslide. He was. He was a power-hungry megalomaniac who plunged Venezuela and its people back into the Dark Ages. You mean by implementing a new constitution? 
which included increased protections for Indigenous people and women and established the rights of the public to education, housing, health care and food by introducing participatory democratic councils within communities, which made decisions by popular assembly of what to do with government funds or maybe by nationalizing several key industries in order to keep Venezuela's wealth inside the country, benefiting the people, or maybe by increasing government funding of healthcare and education and overseeing significant reductions in poverty, maybe by increasing Venezuelans' quality of life according to UN indexes and overseeing a decrease in the poverty rate from 48.6% in 2002 down to 29.5% in 2011, according to the UN Economic Commission for Latin America. Are those the reasons that he plunged the country into the Dark Ages? <laughs> oh, fuck, am I funny? I'm the funniest guy. He's priceless. <laughs> you you got to work on your timing, though. Oh, dear. Oh, boy, Chavez. Anyway, so... The gist of it is the mainstream media painted him as a thug. They painted him? That's not appropriate. Well, you know, in some cultures. Um, anyway, Chavez was uh, once again demonized in the mainstream media. Yeah, called a thug. Dictator compared to Mussolini, Hitler, and Stalin. Mm-hmm. Called a demagogue. Demagogue. Uh, bully, strongman, etc. Yeah. You know how it played out. So I just wanted to take a brief minute to quickly go through... Some of the reasons, in case any of our listeners didn't know, which possibly many of them don't, that in fact, Hugo Chavez, flawed as he may be as any political leader, actually oversaw some stuff that I was completely unaware of, actually, until Mm -hmm. we decided to do some reading into this after he died, when it's less useful. So I I just want to briefly talk about three main areas where Chavez did some crazy fucking shit. Bring it basically, on. In crazy Venezuela. good shit or crazy, crazy bad shit? Crazy good shit. Okay, let's hear it. In Venezuela. Okay, education. So since uh, Chavez came to power, was democratically elected in 1999, which I should point out, there were 16 elections in Venezuela since 1999. He won 15 of those 16 elections, uh, most of the time with a margin of 10 to 20 percentage points. Mm-hmm. All international bodies from the European Union to the OAS, Union of South American Nations and the Carter Center, they were unanimous in saying that these were free and fair, transparent elections. Right. So, dictator, no. On the education front, under his presidency, about 1.5 million Venezuelans learned to read and write. Hmm. They had a literacy campaign called Mission Robinson 1 and 2. Started in 1998. Uh, and it led, in 2005, UNESCO said that Venezuela had effectively eradicated illiteracy. The eradicator! The number of children attending school went from 6 million in 1998 to 13 million in 2007, and now has an enrollment rate. Of That's a bummer for those kids. I know school sucks, doesn't it? And number of tertiary students, so I guess this would be... What's that? University. Tertiary? Tertiary. What does that mean? So, you know, third level. So there's primary school, secondary school. And tertiary is the word for third? Why don't they say third-level school for a guy like me? Third-liary. I guess you have to go to university to understand that word. Third-liary students increased uh, from just under 900,000 in 2000 to 2.3 million. So education, massive increase in education in the country. I would also note that generally uh, dictatorships do not encourage their populations to increase their level of education. Ah, yes. Okay, health. Between 2005 and 2012, Venezuela created almost 8,000 new medical centers. Number of doctors increased 
from 20 per 100,000 people to 80 per 100,000 people in 2010, a 400% increase in the number Send of doctors. Send that shit up here to Winnipeg, fuck. I can't even get into the emergency room when I have a broken face. Uh, infant mortality fell by 49% from 19.1 per thousand to 10 per thousand. Average life expectancy went up from 72 years to 74 years. Hey, two extra years to do nothing. Good news for me. And there are now 5 million children receiving free meals through their school feeding program. Communism. Also, malnutrition fell from oh. 21% to less than 3%. These are some big numbers. Those are big numbers. No, I'm just throwing a bunch of statistics at you right now. But yeah. I think it's important. It's important to know that these are massive gains made for the majority of the population yeah. uh, in what was a very poor Latin American country. Yeah. Oil rich. Oil rich. This is true. So on the last point, economic well-being. Between 1999 and 2011, the poverty rate decreased from just under 43% to just over 26%. And extreme poverty fell as well by about half. Good. High rankings on the Human Development Index of the United Nations. They entered just, just recently in 2011, entered into the high Human Development Index category. They created more than 50,000 cooperatives in the economy. Unemployment fell from 15% to about 6%. Minimum wage increased by over 2,000%. Wow. I could use a bit of that. They also reduced working hours to six hours a day or 36 what? hours a week without loss of pay. That's awesome. Six hours. I could do that. And there's a guaranteed income for adults of a certain age that's equivalent to 60% of the minimum wage. What's a certain age? 99? Uh, I don't know. I don't know what the certain age is. Hmm. So, you know, I've got a bunch more statistics, yeah, statistics here, but it doesn't matter. All you needed to say was in terms of health, education, and economics, they made massive gains. Go check them out in the show notes. But good job. What's next? So, Chris, as you keep mentioning, you were just away in Europe. I your was. Propaganda. That's true. This leads me to ask, what has been happening with propaganda as of late? Give us the give us the scoop. How was the tour? What's coming up? What are you doing? What's haps? Uh, the tour was seemed all right to me. Yep. Who are you? Oh, who were you out there with? We were with uh, a band called Shy Halud. <laughs> a band that may be familiar to some of our listeners. War on Women. Uh, yes, episode four, we interviewed Shauna Potter, the lead vocalist. And we played a few shows with our hometown fellows, Comeback Kid. An oft-touring partner band. Yeah, we've done a few things with them, I think. Yeah. But it was all pretty good. A lot of good people. We had, uh, we had these people uh, from Typewriter Distro come along on the tour. They're from the Netherlands, I believe. And they... Uh, they brought a whole bunch of books along. Interesting things for people who haven't ever considered society outside of the current prevailing horseshit. So your typical propaganda fan. Yes. So it was it was good to have them there. What else? Oh, Sea Shepherd came out for almost the entire tour. Oh, really? And tabling, they, tabling, and speaking before we played, and that Wicked. was that was good. Sea uh, Shepherd's been on a roll lately. They pretty much uh, shut down the Japanese whaling season this year. Did they? Big time, That's yeah. what they kept saying every night. Everybody seemed to have fun. We had a lot of laughs. Okay. That's a lot good. A laughs were had. 
uh, Shai Halud uh, did not appear to enjoy uh, farts as much as some people in my band. Uh, what about did, how, how did how did the members of War on Women enjoy farts? They were in a different vehicle. Ah, they had it, their own fart fest in there. Yeah, they weren't subjected to the asshole of uh, Barney the Sound Man. Yep. Well, that sounds like a really fun time. Yeah, it really does. And you'll be doing it again in a couple months. Yeah, we'll be doing it again in July. Mm-hmm. So keep an eye out on our website for dates in your neighborhood, all you Europeans who don't listen to this podcast. Hey, Derek, you know what else is coming up? Did you know that it's the 20th anniversary of the release of How to Clean Everything? Fuck, did I know? It's only been on my calendar for the last 10 years. In recognition of this 20-year anniversary, Derek, I, in conjunction with Fat Records, the label who originally released that record in 1993, we're going to remaster and reissue <gasps> How to Clean Everything. Oh. And By remaster, do you mean re-record? Because that was my idea. I Well, I didn't mind the idea of re-recording the vocals. But uh, re-record, there's no way in hell anybody would want to do that except me, because I'm an idiot. So it's going to be remastered. Have you heard the remaster? I have heard the first batch of remasters. They're going to they're going to touch it up a little more. It's going to include the tracks that were recorded at the time of How to Clean Everything, but were not released at the time. Um, okay. I think that's three extra tracks. That St- did, and is it the stuff on the seven inch too? I think that's going to be on there too. Okay. But they also found this. This was this shocked me. They sent me this. I don't know how many songs it was. Four or five songs that were. Demos that were made specifically for the record that I didn't think existed anymore. Demos you guys made here for How to Clean Everything? Yeah. I remember recording them at, remember Art Space used to have that studio? Yes. Do you remember that? Uh, like think, in, in Video Pool? Yeah, yeah, video, yeah. video Pool. I think I think we did it with Conrad Sickler. Really? Yeah. We recorded four or five songs and then sent them down there back in 1992. And then I never knew what happened to those copies again until about two weeks ago when the guy sent them and was like, let's put these on. And I was like, what the fuck? Where did you find these? <laughs> so how do they sound? Well, you know, That's it's intriguing. funny because cause I, I always like to think, fuck, How to Clean Everything is not representative of what we were like as a band. F- for whatever reason, I started singing differently in the studio. That's what I always tell myself. These demos sounded very much like <laughs> how to, I was singing like an idiot. <laughs> Because I, I didn't, had no experience. I was just a fucking little... I wasn't supposed to be the singer. We were looking for a singer. We never found one. <gasps> that's funny. Uh, so that's interesting. And Derek, on top of all those little additions that'll be on this re- this 20-year anniversary remaster slash cash grab for Fat Records, we will also be... Chris Hanna. Clint, Chris Hanna. I have also put together a guitar tablature book, guitar and bass tablature book for how to clean everything that people can buy... Bundled with the remastered vinyl. Oh. Or CD. I don't know what the fuck they're doing. There'll be a bundle. Yeah. But wow. I mean, it was my first stab at doing a guitar tab book. Okay. You know, uh, the Sheet Happens guys did our uh, our more reputable records. Right. And I don't think they really wanted to touch this one with a 10-foot pole because I think they were embarrassed for me. Ah, don't be so hard on yourself. I'm not. I transcribed every note myself using the master tapes, soloing every instrument, including the hi-hat. To create these guitar tabs. So that must have been um, uh, an interesting it was and revealing experience. Oh my God. For you to hear the individual tracks. You would not believe how not in time or tune 
me and Samson are on bass and guitar. We're not even. It's not. It's not just that we're playing stuff at different times. They're different notes. <laughs> I think you know. I think even. I think even the most experienced. Well, maybe not the most experienced, but I think any time you listen to a track that you've recorded with a band and then you solo it afterwards, it's impossible for it to sound anything but weird. Yeah, maybe. But this is beyond that. This is. This this sounds like it sounds like what it was a bunch of kids who had no clue that that the recording process should be taken seriously or that you yeah. should pre- prepare for it in any way shape or form it's unbelievable it's unbelievable that 300,000 people think that record is good well they bought it anyway that's true it's unbelievable that 10,000 people think that record is good <laughs> Is that your that's your statistical variance on yeah. the, the the ratio of the purchasers to those who actually enjoy it? Yeah, you know what? It's in the same way that you look at that record with hindsight. So too yes. do the people who would have bought it at the time and been enamored with it. Right. right, such as myself, I was one of those people enamored with the record. I don't listen to it now. I mean, I can objectively look at it and laugh at aspects, <laughs> but. But it hasn't lost its its resonance. What are you talking about? Because it resonates with the 20 years ago me, still. It doesn't, though. It does. It does. For me, I was 15 years old, and, you know, it's 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 it spoke to me. <laughs> it sounds ridiculous. It sounds ridiculous, but it spoke to me. And, well, you know, and... I mean, I'm, I'll, I'll keep this to a minimum right here. But related to the Colleen Patrick Goudreau interview, where we discuss uh, her introduction to uh, veganism, we find we find common ground in, in the book Diet for a New America right. as a sort of gateway. But in conjunction with that, propaganda was my, was my musical gateway into the idea vegetarianism might be something that would be good to try. And in fact, it was the thing that I most disliked about your band when I was in the in the early days of being introduced right to it because that's what I was like that's oh, I don't know why they, they say all this stuff that seems really smart but this vegetarian thing is stupid that's totally ridiculous and uh, and I had a friend at school who was like he was vegetarian from a very young age and he's like oh you know I don't like any of this music you listen to but uh, you know even this band you like is vegetarian I keep telling you you have to look at being hmm. vegetarian, you should really take this seriously. And so it all kind of came together. If not for thinking that it was a possibility, I would never have picked up a book like Diet for a New America and taken that leap. So well, you have to take a little bit of credit for that. That's great. Yeah. That's great to hear. I look a little more forward to the 20 year anniversary in a couple of years of Less Talk More Rock, mm-hmm. where I can, we can do a remaster of that fucking thing and do a tab book because that record, to me, that should have been our first record. It's not an amazing record, and the vocals still suck and everything, but it's you can tell we were, at that point, tr- putting in an effort yep. instead of just being drunk at the Albert and thinking that only Jeff LaPlante was ever going to hear the recording, you know? So we can think of How to Clean Everything as the demo. Yeah. It, it, was, it, was, the, it was the fourth demo. Yeah. It was just a fucking shit show. But this remaster... Is going to sound great. It'll sound, I think it'll sound, you know what, to be honest, I think the mastering on How to Clean Everything is, is just fine the way it was, but it, Fat Records doesn't think it meets modern standards, which I think translates into volume. Yeah, more compression. I don't think that makes a record sound better, 
But I they got to do it anyways because they're adding all those old tracks, all those additional tracks to it. So when is this? When will this be out? It'll be out in the next couple months, Derek. Okay. And just check out fatrec.com. Fatrec.com. Get the uh, get the remaster and the the tab book is going to be limited edition and only available as a bundle with this remaster. Oh, really? Well, that's okay. the plan. Okay. Yeah. Hopefully somebody buys the fucking things. Otherwise, I'm going to be out 15000 goddamn dollars. <laughs> Again. Again. Um, what did you do, Derek, uh, last month? Started reading a couple books. Yeah, what books? Uh, one is uh, 1493. Uh, it is a book uh, about the consequences of the quote-unquote discovery of the new world. Right. By Columbus. Not, uh, not in terms of... The typical narrative of game and he uh, instituted eventual program of genocide against the inhabitants there. Mm-hmm. That ground has been covered, mm-hmm. but it's more about uh, the interconnections between uh, different plant and animal species that were brought over. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, the different trade routes that existed at the time, crazy, tangled, uh, and endlessly complex relationships between the Europeans and the native inhabitants in both. North America and South America. It's actually super, super interesting. What's it called again? Uh, it is called 1493, Uncovering the New World Columbus Created. It is by Charles C. Mann. And he's al- actually, he's also the author of uh, a previous book, which I may read after this one, called 1491. 1491 is about the latest speculation on what the state of the indigenous nations in North America uh, were before Columbus came. I guess his he speculates based on new archaeological evidence that there was a much larger population. It was much more developed. There were much larger cities mm. and interconnected communities throughout North America. And that I think he kind of takes the angle that there has been a there's been an intentional uh, ideological uh, attempt to downplay for obvious reasons, downplay the scope of the civilization that existed in North America. For the purposes of... of for the purposes of, of minimizing... Assuaging the guilt of... Yes, exactly. And to say, you know, they were just mere savages after all, and etc., etc., etc. So it looks pretty interesting. I think some people have predictably challenged some of the scholarship on it, which I could not speak to, of course, because I am no scholar. But anyway, this book, 1493, is like super interesting so far. It's kind of like a less douchebaggy... Jared Diamond style book. You think Jared Diamond is douchebaggy? Uh, Jared Diamond faces a lot of criticism for his Eurocentric worldview. Oh yeah? yeah, I've read quite a bit of stuff recently actually that is highly, highly critical of him, especially his his newest book, which I guess a lot of indigenous scholars take issue with. I had no idea, but I'm not smart enough to deconstruct all this stuff really. So I just read the stuff and I'm like, oh, that's pretty cool. And then I read the next, oh, fuck, that one's pretty cool too. I don't know. Yeah, I know that feeling. Yeah. Uh, the other book I, st- I started just last week because it was just released is Jeremy Scahill, his new book, ah, Dirty yes. Wars. Yeah. Fuck, that book is crazy so far. Oh, yeah? I think I was kind of trepidatious about it because I'm like, oh, it's going to be another political. Yeah. Oh, this person in this administration did this. and then But actually... He's a pretty excellent writer and he he weaves in like some people have said this is the most comprehensive biography of Anwar Alawaki who's the US citizen that was killed by drone strike in Yemen right and his son uh Abdul Rahman Alawaki 
it's the most comprehensive biography that's available. Uh, he had sort of unprecedented access to his family and his community. It's crazy. Hmm. Uh, and so he interweaves the narrative of that with the ascendancy of this new military regime uh, in the U.S., which is basically taking power from the CIA because the CIA has a, even a modicum of, of civilian oversight through Congress and moving it all to uh, special joint task force operations and these basically elite special forces teams and drone strikes just take it all off of the books right? and just go kill people. It's right. super, super intense. Uh, and it's going to be a documentary that'll be out in June as well. So people who are too lazy to read the book, which will probably be me by the time I'm 50% through it, right? can just watch the documentary uh, in June. But you can go to dirtywars.com to find out more about that. It's, uh, it's pretty intense. So that's been my light reading. I purchased three books uh, while on the road. But Derek, the book that I purchased that is most interesting, especially in terms of this episode of Escape Velocity Radio, yes. is Colleen Patrick Goudreau's On Being Vegan. Ah, uh, yes. I purchased and read that book as well. Did you? I did. Really? Yes. And what did you think? I thought it was a great introduction for people who are curious about veganism. A great primer, if you will. Yeah, I agree. And the reason it's relevant to this episode, Derek, is why? Because while I was away, you arranged an interview with Colleen I did. Patrick Goudreau. I did, Chris. Yes, I called her up and we discussed on being vegan. We discussed her excellent vegan advocacy work, mm -hmm. uh, her cookbooks, the 30-Day Vegan Challenge, all of her projects. Uh, she had a lot of really great things to say. And I think that our listeners will be stoked to become vegan after listening to the interview. Really? Let's hear it. Colleen Patrick Goudreau is an Oakland-based writer, podcaster, speaker, chef, and vegan educator. She is the author of six books, including the award-winning The Joy of Vegan Baking, considered by some, including this guy right here, to be the Bible of vegan baking, and most recently, On Being Vegan, Reflections on a Compassionate Life, just released this past month. Her podcast, Vegetarian Food for Thought, now in its seventh year, addresses every issue related to being vegan, among them food, cooking, nutrition, ethics, family dynamics, and food politics, debunking the myths surrounding these issues and often drawing upon poetry, short stories, and other forms of literature to do so. Colleen Patrick Goudreau, welcome to Escape Velocity Radio. That was the best introduction. Did you write that down? Could I have that? <laughs> I did write it down. It's the only that way I can do That was the best introduction. This. That was fantastic. Yeah, that was beautiful. Thank you. Thanks for, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Um, I just have to start by saying thank you to you, uh, not because you opened my eyes to the needless suffering of billions of animals every year, and not because you showed me how I could live a more compassionate life through my daily food choices. Those are all important, amazing things that you do. But I already knew all that stuff long before I was introduced to your work. What I have to thank you for, Colleen, is your pancakes. <laughs> your pancakes are so good. You have made me... A, a pancake czar in Winnipeg, <laughs> and I am eternally grateful for that. Oh, that's awesome. Now, plain pancakes, blueberry pancakes, chocolate chip pancakes? The plain is my go-to, but I like to okay. add any fruits or, yeah, sometimes chocolate chips. But it's just that, that core batter, I, like I've never even had, when I was growing up, traditional like dairy-based pancakes that were that fluffy and delicious. Aww, and I, I hear the fun. same from other Thank people you. all the that's time. That's awesome. I love it. 
So there's lots to talk about, but maybe we should start with your background. Uh, can you tell us how you first came to veganism and why you decided to become vegan? Um, yeah, I mean, my journey was like, I think, so the journey of so many of us where I, you know, was a typical kid who loved animals and didn't know I was participating in their slaughter. I mean, it was really that simple. I had no idea that all of the animals that I had engaged with in my life in so many different ways through books and movies and in person um, that I was contributing to any, any harm against them. I had no idea. And my parents didn't let me know. You know, we kind of hide it. We're, we, we, we have this schizophrenia in our society. We act like we're so okay with it and we find all these justifications to to defend it and yet we keep it hidden uh, from us <laughs> because it's really ugly. And so I, you know, didn't know until I knew. And when I knew, I couldn't do anything but not participate in it. So my journey started like so many where I stopped consuming you know, certain animals. I stopped consuming land animals, and then I stopped consuming aquatic animals, and then stopped consuming anything that came out of any animal um, or off of any animal, and and became vegan. So it was a journey for me, like it is for so many, and um, and it was. You know, you don't, you don't, you know, when you do it, you don't, ex you don't have, ex at least I didn't have expectations. I didn't do it for health reasons. So I didn't have expectations that something would follow after I stopped eating animals. I just figured, oh God, I had no idea. And I don't want to be part of this, but what follows is just, it's so incredible because you really wind up just living so purely according to what you believe that um, it's quite moving. I mean, so many of us, consider ourselves good, compassionate, nonviolent people, I think for the most part. Um, and we don't really realize that we're contributing to the things that we, you know, that are anathema to us. So it was, it's just been pretty incredible. And, and I wanted to spread that to, to others. And that's what I've dedicated my life to. So you, you say that you didn't know until you knew, what was that catalyst for you that opened your eyes to the reality of the suffering of the you know, billions of animals killed every year for food and, and for other uses by humans. For me, it was a book. Well, it started with the Diet for New America. John Robbins, who was the heir to the Baskin Robbins uh, fortune, and rejected it so that he could educate people about the effects of the standard American diet, wrote a book called Diet for New America. And ironically, my father had at one point owned a couple of Baskin Robbins stores. So it's kind of fun that, you know, there was this kind of parallel journey, not by, I wasn't heir to a fortune by any means. It's very different, different in that sense. But, but I was really drawn to 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 knowing, you know, I think as much as I say I didn't know when I was growing up that I was participating in violence against animals, we do know on some level that there was an animal that had once, you know, belonged to this piece of flesh that was sitting on my plate. So, I mean, I knew on some level and, and felt guilty about it and then justified it. Something something compelled me to read and, and pursue and learn and find out more. And so I picked up Diet for New America when I was about 19 or 20. And then stopped eating land animals at that point, considered myself an animal advocate. You know, I was, I was educating and raising awareness about animals in laboratories, animals in circuses, animals in puppy mills, and even vegetarianism, even though I wasn't vegetarian, I was consuming fish still. But I stayed on that path and continued to learn everything I could. And it was the book, uh, which is called Slaughterhouse. I do read 
comedies too but I (laughs) wrote a book called Slaughterhouse which was the most painful thing and life-changing book that I've ever ever read and it was that book that really you know I would have said to you when I stopped eating land animals after reading Diet for New America I would have said to you oh the way the animals are treated is so offensive to me I don't want to be part of it That was one way I looked at it until I read Slaughterhouse, which is when I realized there is violence inherent in this process, in this system that breeds animals, that brings animals into this world only to kill them. And that whole process is inherently violent. And that's what changed for me when I read Slaughterhouse. It was the workers who were you know, who are underpaid uh, and exploited to do the most violent work on the planet, who are so desensitized to their own compassion and to the suffering of the animals, that not only do they hurt the animals beyond the slaughter, forget the slaughter, just imagine an incredibly violent environment where they, they hurt the animals because they can and then they're so desensitized to it that they go home, they drink, they abuse themselves, they abuse their families because they're in this whole system of violence. And that's what really changed for me, that no matter where the animal came from, no matter what farm he came from or what you called it or what label was slapped on it, it was all the same in the end. And that end is so incredibly horrific. It's the stuff of horror movies that none of us want to look at. That's why I'm not even giving you details. I'm just giving you an idea mm-hmm. and people for the themselves can just imagine what I'm talking about. And it was that horror that made me go, there is no possible way I want to pay people to do this uh, to animals and become desensitized like this. But there's two things there. One, Diet for New America was actually my uh, vegan introduction book as well. Yeah. Um, oh, right on. Which is, I, th- I think that's, if you're of that age at the time, that was like, that was kind of the big reveal. You know, I think I know a lot of people who who read that book and, and ended up at least going vegetarian to start, you know? Yeah. Um, but second, you know, just talking about the book Slaughterhouse and what being exposed to actually seeing what happens in a slaughterhouse does, this is exactly what's going on right now with these egg gag laws being passed in a bunch of states in the U.S., trying to prevent people from seeing that exact thing. Well, it's the truth. I mean, when the truth is right in front of you and that truth is revealed through narrative, which is what Slaughterhouse was, or through images, which is what these, you know, the videos that so many of us are exposed to, thank goodness, because of the people doing the undercover work. The book Slaughterhouse started because of an, um, it was an undercover, it was uh, was not an undercover investigation, it was actually an investigative journalist who went in to report on the story that had come out around a whistleblower who had been fired because of him coming out and and revealing what was happening in his in the slaughterhouse he was working in he was an inspector and uh, and so that's there you go i mean it's the same thing i mean it's you know there's a reason i mean this whistleblower had been just you know, I mean, nobody wanted his story out. That's why they have to be anonymous, and that's why they have to, you know, protect themselves because the industry doesn't want the truth to come out. And you know, and we, we, you know, we, we, if we don't have that, then I mean, that, that, that's the biggest tragedy of all. Is that it's already so hidden. It's already so romanticized. Uh, if we don't have the video, if we don't have the stories, if we don't have the people um, able to tell us what's happening, those animals, they are, I mean, they'll have nothing. There's, there's just nothing that we'll be able to do to, to reveal what's happening to them. 
So I just finished uh, your new book on being vegan. Uh, I think it's a really great introduction for people who are curious about the whys and hows of veganism. Uh, can you just tell us a little bit about it, what your goals were with it, and what some of our listeners might expect if they want to you know, take that jump to learning about veganism uh, through your book? Yeah, well, thank you for reading it. It was, you know, it's, it is an introduction to veganism. It, you know, it answers kind of the basic questions about what vegan means, defining what it means, literally in terms of how the word came about, but also practically in terms of what it means to live your life in, you know, according to this thing called veganism. And, you know, my whole emphasis in my work is that the biggest misconception about veganism is that we think it's an end in and of itself. And that there's something admirable about being vegan, just putting that label on and calling someone vegan, that, that that's enough. But for me, being vegan is really just the step, the means to manifesting my values of compassion. I mean, that's all it is. And the best way we can do that is to live in such a way that doesn't cause harm to anyone as best as we're able to control that. And that's the, that, that's the problem is that people think – when when you think being vegan is an end in itself, you go ah, but wait, wait a second. Look at your, you know, look at the the insects you're killing as you're walking down the street, or look at your tires that have animal products in them. And they try to catch you as if we're as if as if I'm walking around saying I'm perfect. I'm just walking around saying, hey, we found this thing that's kind of the best we've got in terms of living in such a way that manifests compassion in this very imperfect world. I'm not trying to be perfect. And so that was really the intention behind the book is to to get that message out there. So people say, wait, this isn't very different than, than what I already believe. This is just a manifestation of this belief. So it answers those questions. And this is really the first step into being able to take all of the information that I have on seven years worth of podcast episodes and be able to start putting them into written style, written format, and, uh, and putting them into book format so people can, can read the information that, that so many right now only listen to. So we can expect more in the in this series of, of books from you then? That is my intention, yes. So the whole series is called the Joyful Vegan Series, and this is the first step, which is on being vegan, and the other ones will be, you know, you mentioned, I mean, everything else we cover in the podcast. One episode, one uh, volume might be specifically on on animals, on on the ancestry of the animals that we've domesticated. One of the things I'm most fascinated about is the fact that we've kind of got this amnesia around the animals who we've domesticated for our purposes, like the cattle, like the sheep, the goats, the chickens, the turkeys. And we have forgotten that these animals were once wild. And to be able to tell their whole story and their history and their ancestry, kind of like roots, you know, kind of like Alex Haley's roots, uh, but for animals so that we can remember that, you know, they didn't come into the world like this. They were here before we were, most of them were. (laughs) So this whole idea that they've come, that they're here for us is so backwards and so opposite of what history actually shows us that those are the kinds of things to you know to really turn these things on on their heads so people kind of re-remember what the truth is you spend some time in the book dispelling some myths around uh, dairy and eggs i assume kind of specifically aimed at vegetarians uh, and also around the small organic farm trope you cite for example that more than 18 percent of u.s beef comes from spent dairy cows and that there's really no such thing as a slaughter-free animal agriculture system. You know, if you if you support one aspect of it, it's all connected. You're supporting the whole thing. Can you talk a little bit about 
about these myths that sustain the belief that lacto-ovo vegetarianism is somehow equal to withdrawing your support from actual animal slaughter? Yeah, I mean, all of this stems from my own experience. This isn't coming from any, you know, self-righteous place. I was that person who thought I was doing something so good because I wasn't consuming land animals. And meanwhile, I was consuming the eggs and and milk of animals. And I had no idea. I mean, I really did think that we have this kind of romanticized notion that, you know, the cows somehow, I don't know, they go to some retirement spot after they're, you know, they're finished being used for their milk, uh, or that there's no harm in using the eggs of chickens because they don't come to any harm. And that's just as opposite as you can get. In fact, frankly, if someone were to say to me, where, where would you have me start in terms of just reducing the suffering of animals, uh, you know, domesticated animals for, that we, that we raise for human consumption, I would start with dairy. Yeah. I mean, the, the, it's so exploitative, even with chickens, you can take the chicken and I talk about this in, on being vegan. Now you can take the chicken out of the exploitative process in the sense that say I, you know, I adopt a chicken a hen from a sanctuary. Well, she's going to keep laying eggs just because she's a female. And like all females, we drop our eggs every month, right? So, and she does it more frequently than that. So she's going to drop her eggs. Just, that's just part of her physiology. When it comes to cows, you cannot take the exploitative process out of it. You cannot take the exploitation out of this process because what most of us don't, aren't encouraged to think about is that they have to be pregnant. Right. And it's it's so upsetting when I think about the fact that the babies are just incidental. They're only there. They only exist because she had to be made pregnant in order to get her to lactate, to stimulate lactation. And she's pregnant for nine months. And all she wants at the end of that nine month period is her baby and that baby is taken away. And that's the, that's the most traumatic moment for any female and any farmer will tell you that any small farmer, happy farmer, happy cow farmer, organic farmer, small farm, humane farm, any will tell you that the most traumatic moment for their, for their cows is when they separate them from their babies. And that's just so upsetting. And I think most of us are upset by that. So I really want to, make it clear that, you know, I look, I get it. I was there. I think my whole message comes from the place that I really believe that people don't want to cause harm. I don't believe that people wake up in the morning trying to figure out how they can create as much suffering as possible. I don't believe that they do that. I also don't believe that they're waking up trying to figure out how they can create as much nonviolence as possible and compassion as possible. Um, so I, I think that we don't want to create harm, but we don't realize we are when we stay ignorant to the facts. And so this is just, I really, you know, want to say, I get it. And here's the facts and, and, and do with this information what you want, period. You also talk in the book about this myth that somehow compassion for animals has to come at the expense of compassion for humans, and you talk a little bit about connections between struggles for both animal and human rights. Can you expand on that a little bit? 
Well, sure. I, you know, I, 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 I think it's very sad, and I don't think it's really true. I, th- I don't think people really believe half the things they say when they're responding in a defensive way to, to someone who's vegan. But one of the things that people say is, you know, you know how, how can you care about animals? Why don't you take care of the children? There are enough problems in the world. As if they're separate, as if they exist in a vacuum. And I don't believe they exist in a vacuum. And most leaders in, in, in every social justice movement historically do not believe they existed in a vacuum. They don't. They're all connected. And I believe our hearts are large enough to care about all of these things. The idea that I can only care about one thing at a time is ridiculous. So in terms of history, I mean, if you look at the people who were involved in the suffragist movement and in the suffrage movement to get the vote for women, in the abolition movement, in the movements to stop children being exploited, you know, at nine years old, eight years old, with no rights, with, you know, working in factories. I mean, every leader in these movements became leaders in the animal protection movement because they saw that it extended to injustice. It was just an extension of injustice. Injustice for one is is injustice for all. And so that's what's so exciting for me when you look at you know Henry Berg who was the founder of the ASPCA it was linked with him founding the first child protection organization or um, or any number of these leaders when you look at William Wilberforce in England who is the reason you know after dozens of years he was trying to get parliament to make um, the slave trade illegal and and worked, worked just tirelessly on this behalf. He was also one of the founders of the RSPCA. So, you know, they, they made these connections, and it's a mistake to think that these issues are, are separate from one another. I have to admit, I asked that last question as someone who, at the age of 16, got a tattoo on his leg which said, love for animals, hate for humans. You have this remarkable ability, uh, both in your book and, and in your other work, to ride this line between... Uh, passionate and confrontational when advocating for veganism, even when laying out the case for it in all of its gory and depressing details. So how do you, I guess my question is, how do you do that without the inevitable rage and despair when we're faced with all this bubbling up to the surface? Because because it's like when you just told me that my heart just broke because I don't believe that came from a place of, of sheer you know, hatred or, or violence or anger. I believe it comes from a place of, of fear and despair yeah. because who, who was hurting the animals, but the humans, right? I mean, so yeah. it came from a place of, you know, I, I, I love, I love, I want to protect these animals over here because these animals over here are hurting them so badly. So when I hear that, when I hear about animals being hurt, uh, the first I can't help but feel that the animal, the people who are hurting these animals are, 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 they're, they're damaged. They're disconnected. They're blocked. I'm not saying there aren't sadistic people out there. Of course there are. I'm not so naive as to think that. Of course there are. But I think that the systematic violence against animals is coming from millions of people who are desensitized and not not sadistic. Do you know what I mean? Do you, do you see what I mean? Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I, and I think the danger in thinking they're all you know, demons is to separate our potential 
from that. You know, if we could say that they're monsters, then we don't look like them. They don't look like us. That's, a, that's a, some kind of anomaly. When the truth is, we all have the potential to be the most violent people, and we all have the potential to be the most compassionate people. And I guess that's what I dwell on, is that I don't believe that what people are doing is really a reflection of who they are at their core. And that's what I just default to. That's what I remember. That doesn't mean I don't get angry. And that doesn't mean I don't cry. And I, and, and, you know, you know that language is a huge part of the work I do. And the word anger actually comes from the word anguish. It comes from the word that means, that means suffering and despair and anguish. And that's what's underneath that. So even when I feel anger, that that's not a, it's not like it's a misguided emotion. It's an emotion I embrace, but I don't dwell in it. So that, I think, is what enables me to talk to people who, even on the surface, might seem like they care very little when I really think they care very much. I'm glad you brought up language because you do talk a lot about language in your work and how the words we use and how we use them are important when discussing veganism and our relationship with animals. For example, I love how you've been reclaiming the word meat from applying exclusively to the dead bodies of animals. Can you talk a little bit about language and how it can shape people's perceptions of veganism? Totally. I mean, and you know, here's where I think vegans are actually the most guilty at perpetuating this notion that, you know, animal-based meat, dairy, and eggs are superior and everything else is inferior to those things. We perpetuate this all the time with the language we use. We also perpetuate violence against animals through the language we use. All of us do. When we call someone a pig or we call someone a jackass or we call someone, uh, you know, you know, lazy as a dog or stupid as a mule or, you know, we, we use this language that just denigrates animals constantly. Uh, so yeah, and it's not like I love the word meat so much that I'm trying, because when people hear meat, they do tend to think of animal flesh and I'm not trying to, embrace it because I think it's this beautiful word. The point is that the word meat originally meant that which was eaten rather than that which was drunk. It was solid food. It referred to solid food rather than a liquid, a beverage. And we say it today when we say coconut meat, when we say nut meat, you know, the, the, the meat of a nut. The problem is that when we associate it only with animal flesh, anything other than animal flesh becomes fake, faux, alternative, substitute, replacement, analog, all of these words that then go, oh, anything that's not animal-based meat is less than. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So that's where we, and, and vegans do it too, where we say, you know, oh, uh, you know, you know, or we agree when someone says, is it regular milk or is it, they don't usually say fake milk. These days, I think people will say, is it soy milk or is it rice milk? But they say regular milk mm -hmm. versus um, soy milk. And, and it will mean regular milk. What are you talking about? What's regular milk? All females lactate, all female mammals lactate. So are you talking about human milk? You're talking about, I don't know, hyena's milk? Like what milk are you talking about? So we, we need to use language that absolutely reflects the truth so that we're not all walking around conditioned to say that, um, that that's normal, that meat, dairy, and eggs, animal-based meat, dairy, and eggs are normal and everything else is subpar. And when we do that, when we make it seem like everything else is subpar, who's going to want that? Who's going to be attracted to that? Who's going to be attracted to, come on over for some fake food? Nobody. 
right? I, mean, yeah. I don't want to come over for an analog. I'd like to come over for some real food. And of course it's real food. It's just made from plants. I'm going to try that one next time I invite someone over for supper, come over for some, <laughs> for some veritable spread of analogs. Um, you know, related to that, I'm curious about your take on this explosion of animal product imitations and quote unquote substitutes in recent years. Like, do you think this has been important in contributing to the growth of veganism when people can go to the grocery store and instead of the ground beef, it's ground soy or, you know, and it's, it's a lot of packaged food. Obviously it's not necessarily all the healthiest food. Um, but like, what are your thoughts on, on this kind of, uh, rapid growth of this segment of food marketed to vegans and vegetarians? Yeah, I think it's I think it's great in the sense that it, to me it's just another human created product just like animal based products are if you think about it. I mean, you know, I mean the, these we 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 have to process the animal pretty heavily in order to cut them up and put them on our plate, right? So this isn't like, you know, I mean nature's greatest food perfect food is really is plant foods. I mean, that's just the bottom line, right? So all of this is just a manifestation of human created stuff, you know, processed food. I, I do think there is a spectrum of processed foods. And I'm not someone who kids, who kids around and says, oh, you know, I only advocate whole foods. Oh, of course I do. I advocate whole foods being the foundation of your diet because it's going to be the most nutrient dense. It's going to be the most delicious and you're going to get away from all of the fat and salt laden animal based products that we're so used to. I mean, so that's the, ba- the best you can do. But there's a spectrum of processed foods. As soon as you take a blueberry off of a bush and you put it in the freezer, you've processed that berry. But is there something wrong with eating frozen blueberries? No, it's just not that fresh blueberry anymore. So it's just, you know, so it's just one step away from its original. So, so all of this, there's a spectrum in all of it. Do I advocate that people consume heavily processed meats and, and all of this several times a day? No. And that's part of what everyone is coming to terms with understanding what it means to eat a whole foods, um, plant-based diet. That doesn't mean you can't, that doesn't mean there isn't more, you know, processed foods that we do eat. But I'll say this, the reason I think it's okay is that it's not about the flesh. When people are eating animal-based meat, it's not because we're obligate carnivores. That's been the marketing ploy, and it's been very successful because people walk around saying, I crave meat. No, you're not craving meat. You're not an obligate carnivore. What you're craving is fat, and you're craving salt. You're craving texture. You're craving the familiarity of it. You're not, cra- you're not craving the flesh of this animal. So when you look at all of these vegetarian meats, vegan meats, plant-based meats, nut-based meats, soy, wheat-based meats, whatever it is, it's basically creating the familiarity, the fat, the salt that people have come to associate with the animal-based flesh. So if it means that it's going to give people the same mouthfeel and the same experience, that's great. That's fantastic. And in the meantime, you know, also getting away from the animal-based products, you're also going to get more interested in the whole fruits and vegetables too. So I think there's room for it. I really, I think, I think it's great. And I think, uh, as you know, the bottom line is people don't even know what they're eating half the time. And if it tastes good, that's the bottom line. That's why so many vegans who live with non-vegans can say they quote unquote 
you know, fool their family members or, trick, you know, fool them in the sense that they'll set, give them something that's plant-based and, and their family loves it. Well, of course they did because it's giving them all of those same, you know, flavor profiles or mouthfeel, whatever it is, that the animal... So they weren't like, oh, God, no, I need the animal version. I can't have the plant version. The bottom line is if it has the texture they love, they're going to eat it. Are you familiar with this Beyond Meat product that's been talking about recently? It's interesting because their stated goal is to try to redefine the meat category and turn it into a quote unquote protein category and then try to get people to think about these are just all proteins. Some are animal, some are plant. I thought it was an interesting kind of take on trying to use product marketing to maybe affect a change in people's thinking about what their food actually is, you know? And I think it's brilliant because we have to have the paradigm shift. If we don't have a paradigm shift, this is just going to be a few more products on the market. Isn't that great? Nothing's going to change fundamentally. That's one of the things I love about field roast. You guys have field roast? Yes. Oh God, it's good. Right? I mean, just so fantastic. And they, this is one of the things that I fell in love with them. David Lee, who's the founder, uh, he and I have connected about this a lot because they call it, they call it grain meat. Yeah. And that's what I love about them is that they embrace that from the beginning. So yeah, I think, I think it's brilliant that Beyond Meat is doing that. And their whole goal is to also make this to be as cheap yeah. uh, or cheaper than, uh, than, than chicken flesh. So your work is pretty much 100% education and outreach. Uh, but I'm curious what your thoughts are on other tactics taken by individuals and organizations to reduce animal suffering. Everything from animal welfare organizations working on legislation, you know, what some might call a bigger cages, longer chains kind of approach, uh, all the way to direct action taken by the ALF, say, in liberating individual animals and destroying animal testing laboratories. Yeah, you know, kind of like I just said, you know, my whole intention is to change the consciousness and to change the paradigm that we live in and to basically ask people, I always say that I'm not asking people to live according to my values of compassion and kindness. I'm urging them to live according to their own values. And for me, that is fundamental, that it has to be a consciousness shift for people or nothing's going to change. We're going to continue to see animals as here for us to do it as we please. If we don't work on changing that paradigm, nothing's going to, nothing's going to shift. So do I think, do I spend any time working on anything that's going to change the size of the cages? No, because it's not, it's not changing anything fundamentally because for me, the, 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 the factory farm system, the cages, the, you know, the, the, the scale, uh, the, the, the whole animal factories is an outgrowth. It's an, it's an, it's a manifestation of a mindset that sees animals as here for us. It, it's, it's just getting rid of the effect isn't getting rid of the cause, and we have to get rid of the cause. I mean, Donald Watson, you know, you, you would have read this in, on being vegan. He didn't found the word vegan because he saw animal factories in his backyard. He found it because he saw the fundamental violence that's inherent in, 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 in killing animals because he saw it on his uncle's small farm. His uncle's small farm that now everybody is saying is the, is the, is the place we have to go back to. Going back to a system that led to the system we're in now isn't the answer. The answer is manifesting our, our true compassion, which, which is pretty much no harm. I like to kind of switch gears a bit and talk about some of your projects. You've written and published three cookbooks, three excellent cookbooks, I might add. Uh, what was it that started you down the road of cookbook authorship? 
a road that I resisted. <laughs> um, I did. I resisted it because I was really afraid to get compartmentalized as a, as a cookbook author. Um, I started this work as I started this work doing outreach. I was, I was, you know, on the streets in Berkeley and Oakland doing street TV, showing slaughterhouse videos. This was 13 years ago. And my whole aim again is to raise awareness and, 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 be the voice for animals and, and I want people to see, you know, what, what's going on with the animals. What I found was that most people are moved by it. They don't want to be part of it, but they would say, I don't know what to eat and I don't know where to shop. And what about the holidays? And what about my family? And what about protein? And what about calcium? And what about this? And what about that? They wanted to make the change, but they didn't know how. And that's really where I see my work, Derek, because I see, you know, I think most people know instinctively or because of things they're, they're reading or seeing, most people know why there are benefits to being vegan, but where they really struggle is the how. And so for me, my, that response was, okay, there's a gap. Let me fill that gap. So I started teaching cooking classes with a master's in English literature. I mean, that was literally just, okay, <laughs> people need this information. And I like cooking enough where I knew it enough. I mean, it wasn't even it did not come from a place of me loving to cook at all. It came from a place of people want to make the change and they don't know how I'm going to give them the tools to do it. That was, that was, that's where it came from. That's where all of my work continues to come from. So I started teaching the cooking classes and it really, it worked. And what I realized is through the cooking classes, I would be able to talk about these larger issues because I wouldn't just be sitting there saying, okay, saute onions, isn't this great? Isn't this fun? I would, you know, I wouldn't just say, okay, pour the non-dairy milk in. I would say, okay, so, you know, why is it that we're consuming the milk of other animals? And why are we consuming cow's milk? And we're talking about it has calcium. Well, why does it have calcium? Because the cows eat grass. So it was, it was my foray into being able to, to talk about these larger issues. And that's, and then everything went from there. From there, I you know produced a DVD because I wanted people to have that information beyond Oakland. From there, I started doing the podcast because, again, people had these questions and I wanted to be able to answer them without the distraction of, okay, and now saute the onions. Uh, from there, it you know began the talks that I, that I give, the lectures that I give all around uh, North America. I'd like to say the world, but at this point it's been the United States and Canada. Uh, from there, it uh, the books, etc. So the books came from a, a publisher actually contacted me, and this was back in 2006, and they wanted to do a book on vegan baking, and they came to me, and I really resisted. I really resisted because I was really afraid to just be compartmentalized, and so I, I took the advice of a lot of good friends, and they were right, and so that's how the cookbooks came about and I'm proud and I stand behind every single recipe because these are recipes that people make in their homes. These are not recipes that they're just, they're just fun to look at and they just sit on the shelves. I mean, these have become part of people's repertoires and I'm so, so proud of that, but I don't really see cookbooks in the future. Um, at least not, not anytime soon. It's funny because my, uh, my next question was, you know, it definitely seems like your newer books are more about helping people make that transition in other ways in their life. And I was going to ask, have we seen the last cookbook from Colleen Patrick <laughs> Goudreau? And perhaps we have. I would never say never, but I do feel like there are 500 recipes between all of the books. 
And that includes Vegan's Daily Companion, which was the first non-cookbook um, that just followed that followed after Color Me Vegan. You know, and there are a ton of, of vegan cookbooks out there. And again, I mean, I think mine are the best because I stand by them and they're the recipes I know the best and I know where they come from. I know where they stem from. So I'm, I'm incredibly proud of that. And I feel like the work I do in other areas around consciousness shifting and uh, language and, you know, kind of bigger picture issues, bigger, well, bigger picture and core issues around compassion. I think I do that pretty uniquely where I think there are a lot of wonderful cookbook authors out there. And I just feel like I'd rather, I'd rather move on in another direction, but I would never say never. Let's talk about the 30 day vegan challenge. What is the 30 day vegan challenge? So the 30 day vegan challenge really is probably, you know, the, the, the accumulation of, of 13 years of my work where it enabled me to take everything that I was saying, that all these questions that people have around the food, around making the time to cook, around the nutrients, around the social aspects, around eating out, around the family dynamics, and put it into one program to say, look, just do it for 30 days, and during this time, I'm going to hold your hand and answer every question you have. And by the end of the 30 days, you have a strong foundation to stand on and you are empowered to continue doing it. The biggest problem I think people have when they are making a diet change or making this fundamental change, more than just a diet, but making the, the, the practical changes is they remove all of these things that are familiar to them and they don't replace them. And then people flail about and never really feel like they're standing on solid ground and they wind up going back to what is most familiar. So the 30-day Vegan Challenge is really a, it's a behavior program in terms of changing habits, changing the way you think about things, changing the way you do things. So that you get to the other side, you know, kind of like Karate Kid, you get to the other side and all of a sudden you can get in a ring and you can do these moves that you, you know, that you thought were going to be useless. You get to the end of the 30 days of the 30-day Vegan Challenge and you go, wow, I really, I really internalized this information and I feel really confident uh, being able to, to do this, you know, and continue doing it and feel really good about it. I think it's such a great idea because it fits into something, such a familiar paradigm for people, you know, just a month seems like such a manageable chunk of time and it, and it lets people think that it could just be a temporary thing when they start it, you know, and then they can get to the end and hopefully realize that this is, you know, for good. What has the response been? Has it been positive in that way or where you're finding that most people who are, who are coming through it come out the other side and we're like, this is, this is incredible. I'm, I'm sticking with this. I'm sticking with it. Yeah. And, you know, and I, and I really do, I very much stand by the teachings of my own work, which is to plant seeds and not be attached to the outcome. So I don't create this saying you better be vegan by the end and you better stay vegan. And if you don't, I'm going to be really disappointed. <laughs> All I can do is give this information. And like I said, you can do with it what you will. I'm confident that the information will, will really shift people and really have a great impact. And what I have found is that that's true. And people come to the other side and, and, and really have stuck with it. I'm, I'm so proud that the people who find my work and are, are moved by it, the, the emails that I get from people, the messages that I've been getting people for the 13 years that I've been doing this work is never, you know, there's some good recipes and how exciting. And I've really incorporated this into my other non-vegan recipes. And isn't it sweet? And thank you so much. It's not this surface um, 
response, the response I get is, you've changed the way I see the world, and you've changed the way I am in the world, and I'm, I'm so grateful for that. That's pretty moving, and I'm pretty grateful for that. So everything that I think has that effect is in, is in the 30-Day Vegan Challenge. So I am seeing people come on the other side going, wow, I thought I was just going to be coming in and kind of learning some new recipes, and this has really changed the way I operate in the world. And, that's, and, the, and then I'm bringing that to my family, and I'm bringing that to my friends, and that's pretty cool. So Colleen, I think we'll probably wrap things up here. Do you have any parting messages for Escape Velocity Radio listeners? Sure. I mean, I, I would say for anybody who's listening, wherever they are, there's always something they can do. I mean, that's what's, you know, that's the message that I, I guess I would leave with everybody is I think one of the biggest misconceptions that, that people have is that, you know, most people say they don't eat a lot of meat, dairy, and eggs. Most people think they're kind of done. They've kind of done everything. Wherever they are on the spectrum, there's always something more to do. And I always say you don't know how much you eat until you stop. So that's one of the things that's really wonderful about the 30-Day Vegan Challenge is I'm just staying, saying stop long enough to just kind of recognize your habits and, um, and, and see what they are and see if there's any changes that can be made. And if they've already come to that and they want to participate and they want to be involved with doing something to help, I really think the best thing people can do in terms of activism and advocacy is something that is a reflection of their skills and their passion. I was able to take my, my skills and my passion for writing, for literature, for speaking to people, my passion for people. I mean, I really love people. I think I wouldn't be able to do this work as effectively if I didn't genuinely like people, and I do, um, and of course, genuinely love animals and love being around them. I love their presence. I love their essence. Um, so the thing that's going to make us the most effective in this world is to do something that is a reflection of both our passion and skills. And that might mean, you know, kind of going in this direction and not really finding that you like that very much and then trying something over here. But um, there, there's so much work to be done and there's, there's so many ways to go about it. And we all just have to do something. And it's, it's pretty gratifying work knowing that, you know, that we can do something to leave this world um, a little better, to make it a little more compassionate. You know, I really do hope that people wake up in the morning and figure out how they can live the most compassionate lives. That would be my hope for, every, for everyone, for every listener. So compassionatecook.com. Okay. Yeah, CompassionateCook.com is where people can find all of the information for anything that I do. So the podcast okay. is there. They can also go directly to iTunes and find the podcast at Vegetarian. It's Vegetarian Food for Thought. It's all vegan. It's called Vegetarian Food for Thought. Yeah. And, um, and then 30 Day Vegan Challenge is at 30dayveganchallenge.com. Well, Colleen, I will extend thanks to you from me and Chris for all of the excellent work that you do for being a far more effective vegan educator than myself or anyone I know. <laughs> and, um, and yeah, for doing so much on behalf of the animals. Oh, thank you, Derek. Thank you so much for joining us today on Escape Velocity Radio Calling. Thank you. Wow, Derek. Good job on this interview with Colleen Patrick Goudreau. Many thanks. To me? For what? For, <laughs> for saying For that? saying I was good. No, it was good. I liked that. Yeah. What are your thoughts? What are your, uh, what are your first impressions of well, that interview now that you've listened to it many times? It was good. I mean, it, I mean it, it was entirely consistent with what I, I suppose I expected Colleen Patrick Goudreau to say because I'm kind of familiar with her work over the past six or seven years mm -hmm. and uh, she is a tireless and very consistent advocate for animals and... 
maintains positions I've become familiar with through her Vegetarian Food for Thought podcast in this interview. Yes. It's funny to, in our older age, learn what effective advocacy actually might be. <laughs> As opposed to our, well, our, we, our earlier adolescent ideas about... Some of our youthful folly that was influenced by rage mm-hmm. and uh, outrageous bravado and an urge to destroy and filled with hatred. You know what I mean? It's an accurate description. <clears throat> it, like it, it kind of stood out. Like you tried to make the joke to her in the interview about having that tattoo when yeah. you were 16 years old, which is a long time ago, over 17 years, 18 years? It's nine, 19 years ago. 19 years ago. You tried to make the joke that in an act of youthful folly, yeah. you got that tattoo that declared a hatred for humans and a love for animals. She didn't find it funny. No. She, she was, she's, I think she said heartbroken. Yeah. I see, I see the humor in that because I, I was, the, you know, I still feel that way in some way. I don't actually feel that way, yeah. but I do feel that way. You understand the I under- sentiment. I understand the rage. And I think she did, she did too, but I mean, her work is to turn that rage into compassion yep. and effective advocacy. And we come from a cultural music scene where hitting people over the head with a sledgehammer was part of the attraction or part of the... It was just how you did things. But I mean, I mean, it, it had its time and place amongst in a certain context, and it and some people think it was effective. Well, and that that was the message that resonated with me as right. a young man. Like, right, we it were, was we, we were her message. I don't think would have reached me at that particular time in my life because no. she's like, you know, be compassionate. Here are some reasonable things. Let's talk. And I'm just, it was all about communicating through outrage because we were young demented men demented by society yep. and unable to although you know there was lots of people back then that were were trying to guide other rage-filled minds sort of into more productive al- paths al- along a pathway that that was more about compassion and understanding and patience but uh even if you look at propaganda song lyrics if you go back and look at the lyrics they're not actually as belligerent as some of the things we were doing. Yeah, it was more as, It was more outside of the songs. Yeah, because the songs actually do acknowledge trying to be understanding and patient. Yes. And, and being ef- an effective voice for animals. But I think if you had asked us back then, we would have thought we were being effective. And we would have, we, it wasn't that we were like, we, we thought we were putting ourselves, our own interests ahead of animals. We thought. Yeah, this, this, we is, thought, this is the tactic that works. Yeah, this is the way you do it. Yeah. Because th- it worked for me. Yeah. It's like bands did this to me. And, uh, I, they opened my eyes by refusing to let me have my eyes closed. Right. And now we understand on a larger scale that isn't the most effective way. No. Like that context is kind of, was very rare and is essentially dead. We lacked wisdom. Yes. Essentially. I didn't grow up with a lot of wisdom. So what was I supposed to do? Well, and it's funny because now confrontation over something like eating animals or anything, really, I dislike it. So much as I get older, it's the last thing I want to do is have some fucking face down with someone over any issue. It probably doesn't sound cool to uh, perhaps mostly young men swaggering through the animal rights movement, but uh, you know her joyful vegan thing makes more sense than than the hateful vegan. Than hateful <laughs> vegan. At the same time, uh, she didn't really comment on the question about direct actions. No, I think I think it was very intentional that. She didn't really want to address that question. Right. Um, I think from a ta- from a tactical point of view and her advocacy work, probably her commenting on that at all is 
going to piss someone off. Yeah. Uh, and she's just about being positive, showing people the positive things about being vegan and living a more compassionate life. Yeah. And the proof is in her pudding. It's true. Because she is effective. Well, speaking of uh, reading listener feedback, the kind of letters that she gets are unreal. The kind of change that people attribute to her in their lives after becoming familiar with her work, the kind of transformations they go through, you know, not just in terms of their diet, but just in terms of their worldview and how they see suffering and compassion in the world. It's uh, some of it's pretty mind-blowing. Transformative experiences. So yes, I'm totally stoked that we were able to uh, have her on and hopefully there are some people listening right now who uh, maybe they haven't taken that step yet and maybe Colleen Patrick Goudreau can help them go down that road. You know what, Chris, why don't we help one of our listeners walk down that road? Okay. I'm going to say right now, yeah. we are going to have yes. a draw, a contest. A draw. Is it a draw or a contest? I don't know. What are you talking about? Well, someone can go to our website. Yeah, they I can, could do that. They can give us uh, their name and their email address, and then we will randomly pick one listener, and okay. we will send them a copy of Colleen Patrick Goudreau's new book on being vegan. What do you think of that? That's good. Am I eligible? You are ineligible. That's a good idea. So what do people do? Uh, go to our website, escapevelocityradio.com. Yes. Slash raffle. Raffle. Yeah. I love a good raffle. Put in your name, email address, your mailing address, and... And tell us why you, of all people on the planet, deserve to have Colleen's new book on being vegan. Yeah, so we will announce the winner on next episode of Escape Velocity Radio. Hey, thanks for tuning in for episode nine of Escape Velocity Radio. The show is produced, recorded, and edited by George Marino, who's a famous mastering engineer who died actually last year. <laughs> the show is produced, recorded, and edited by Chris Hanna and Derek Hogue in that order of importance. We want your feedback. Email us at feedback at escapevelocityradio.com or leave us a voicemail on Skype at username Escape Velocity Radio, or by calling 701-213-4483. To join the discussion about this episode or to check out the show notes, visit our website at escapevelocityradio.com. If you're not already, please subscribe to the show on iTunes or sign up for our email list to be notified when each new episode is available. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook. I hate Facebook. And SoundCloud, don't know what it is. Those links and our email sign-up form can be found on our website. What's a website? At escapevelocityradio.com. Peace!